0: I am delighted to be able to bring you greetings from the Master Seminary, which just happens to be the greatest seminary in the world. Uh, Occasionally, people want to argue about things like that. And if you know of any larger seminaries, that's okay. Uh, You may know of seminaries that have uh, more diverse theological opinions represented amongst their faculty members. But at least when it comes to humility, we're tops. About six weeks ago, I spoke over here at Grace Baptist Church on two very important things that the Lord has really been impressing upon my own heart and my own soul, and several of you have asked me to speak on those things again, and that's what I want to do here this morning. I want to speak on two issues, and I will label them faithfulness and friendship. And these issues, I believe, are as important as any issues that we could possibly discuss together this morning. Perhaps the best way to start is to uh, go way back in my own life and remember a time way back when, let's see, I, um, I think it was the summer of my about 18th year, along about 1949 or 50 or somewhere about like that, and it was uh, mid-August and our whole family lived out in the country in Tennessee and we were waiting for it to arrive. Now, if you've never lived in the country, you may have an idea of what I'm talking about. If you've never lived in the country, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But there's something that was very important that usually arrived in August every year, and we look forward to it because it was a prominent part of country life. It happened to be the fall and winter edition of the Sears and Roebuck catalog. <laughs> and its first use was that we always used it as our shopping guide for starting the school, and then we always used it as our shopping guide for what we wanted for Christmas. And I remember I was the first one who was waiting. Mother was waiting for it. Dad was waiting for it. My brother was waiting for it. Even my baby sister wanted to see it. But I was more concerned about getting that catalog than anyone else. And so I saw the mailman coming on the particular day when the catalog was there, and I got it first. And I opened the catalog and skipped all that uh, women's underwear and everything in the front, you know. (laughs) And I got to the real good stuff in the catalog, which happened to be the section that had the guns and all the sporting goods equipment, you know. That's the part that really interested me. I was a coon hunter in those days. I went coon hunting almost every night, in season and out. And (laughs) And I saw something in that catalog that really caught my eye. I believe, I'm not sure whether this is correct or not, but to my knowledge, this is the first time they were making those things. I saw a long five-cell stainless steel flashlight, and i would never seen one before. Nowadays if you go to Radio Shack, you can get a plastic one for 49 cents. I remember for a while they were giving them away free. But this was something that I really wanted because I knew it would just be perfect for spotting coons up in trees. And so I I looked through that catalog, and I already had a gun and other things, and I saw that. I don't remember the price, but it was something about $5 probably, which is quite a bit of money for those of us living out in the country to expect to get a Christmas present that cost that much. But anyhow, when I found the page that had that that, uh, flashlight on it, I circled the flashlight, you know, with a pencil. I circled it like this so when Mom and Dad are going through, they're going to see what I want, what I'm interested in. And then I turned the tab of the page down at the top, you know, and then I turned the tab at the bottom up. So there's no way in the world they could get through that catalog without seeing what I really wanted for Christmas. <laughs> well, uh, sure enough, Christmas morning, there was a package under the tree that was about the right size, and I opened it with great expectation, and my mom and my dad tell me that... Uh, when I discovered that it, it was that flashlight that I leaped up and slapped the ceiling and turned a couple of somersaults and yelled, yippee, at the top of my lungs. And that flashlight was my prized possession. I carried that thing literally almost everywhere I went, almost all the time. I wasn't totally stupid. I didn't carry it in a daytime. Okay. <laughs> but the flashlight was my was my pride and joy, if you wish. It was my most treasured possession. Do you realize that God has a treasured possession? Do you realize what it is? There are a number, of course, of scripture passages that talk about this. The fact is that I am his rich treasure, and you are his rich treasure. He views us as his pride and joy. Uh, I'm a grandfather, and I usually have pictures of grandchildren in my billfold that I like to show you on occasion, just rare occasions, obviously. Uh, i have a friend who carries in his billfold a picture of his pride and joy and he shows it to people and it's a bottle of pride and a bottle of joy you know this uh, detergent stuff you know? but <laughs> but i wonder i wonder if it's too facetious and too far-fetched to imagine our heavenly father viewing us in a very similar way almost as though he would have a picture album to hold up and look at these pe- look at these people look at these folks these are my richest people treasures. This is my pride and joy. That's what we're told, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. There Paul is praying, and he says, what I want you to understand, I want you to understand just a little bit about the riches of his inheritance in the saints. Our Lord believes that he has a rich treasure in me, and he believes that he has a rich treasure in you. And a little bit later in that same book, we won't turn right now, but in Ephesians chapter 3, a little bit later we're told there that under the principalities and powers, of course, we're talking about what's going to be done in ages throughout eternity. He's going to be manifesting his manifold wisdom, his grace, his mercy, his glory. He's going to be manifesting those things through us. We are going to be what he holds up before the universe to display as his pride and joy. He views us as his rich treasure in a way perhaps somewhat analogous to the way that flashlight was my rich treasure. But not only that, not only are we his rich treasure, which is awesome to believe that he understands us and views us in such a way, but there's coming a day when he's going to reward us. And that's awesome to me. There are several passages of the Bible, of course, that emphasize the fact that there will come a time when each of us will stand before our Lord and we will be rewarded. We're told, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, I'm not concerned about what men think of me, but there's coming a day when each one will receive his praise from God. That's awesome, isn't it? And then we're told in a number of other passages of Scripture, the one that comes to my mind is a Revelation chapter 11, verse 18, where, where uh, John has been surveying the events of the tribulation period, and he gets to the time of the end in a little overview and summary, and he says, The time came to give rewards to thy servants, the prophets, and to, thy, and to the saints, the small and the great. The great, I guess, would be the Martin Luthers and the John Calvins and the Billy Grahams and others, and the small would be me and you and most of the rest of us. But God's going to reward us. Now, to me, that's awesome as well. Not only are we his rich treasure, but he's going to reward us. The third thing I want you to think about is that is that I want you to consider what is the basis for the reward. Upon what basis will our Father reward us? Will our God reward us when we stand before him? And if I were to give you time to answer, I know you'd come up with the right answer because it's very clear over and over again in the New Testament that the basis for reward is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Now, think about that. Let, let's just mention two or three passages of scripture in a hurry and have you meditate upon it and have it soak into your soul. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2 there Paul says, "What is required in stewards, that is those who serve the Lord, is that a man be found faithful, right? Faithful. There are other passages which emphasize the same thing. Second Timothy chapter 2, another very common verse, a very familiar verse, chapter two verse two. The things which you've heard of me among uh, you've heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou also to what kind of people? Faithful men. Will be able to teach others also, and when you go to the to the Gospels, when our Lord is talking about this subject over and over again, that theme comes up. For example, in Matthew chapter twenty-five, He's giving parables about about uh, servants who've been uh, vested with certain uh, uh, treasures and riches, gifts, talents, and He says, when He returns, "Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been." Faithful over a few things, I'll make you ruler over many things. And two verses later on in the same chapter, the exact same phrase again. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Because you've been faithful, I'm going to give you a reward. You see, the basis for faithfulness when when we stand before the Lord, the basis for reward is faithfulness. Now, I like that. Think about it for a moment. Think about what that means. That means that the basis for reward is when you stand before the Lord is not how much you know. The basis for reward when you stand before the Lord is not how gifted you are. The basis for your reward when you stand before the Lord is not how many accomplishments can be listed after your name. The basis is not necessarily how many books have you written. The basis is not how well is your name known. Is it known far and wide across the nation? The basis for reward is faithfulness. Does that register in your soul? That's To me, that's awesome. That's exciting. It's encouraging. It really is thrilling to my soul because, you see, I happen not to be as gifted as some people I know. And you're not as gifted as other people you know. And and it would be a very discouraging thing to believe that, that the rewards that we receive when we stand before God would be based solely and entirely upon how much we know, how many gifts we've been able to demonstrate, what kind of string of accomplishments we could list after our name. It takes a lot of the pressure off to understand that what our Lord is expecting of us is simply faithfulness. I'll never be a Martin Luther. I'll never be a John Calvin. I'll never be a Chuck Swindoll, I'll never be a John MacArthur. I've discovered that I'll never even be the most famous Chuck Smith in the world. (laughs) But by God's grace I can learn to be faithful, and by God's grace you can learn to be faithful. By the way, have you ever noticed in the New Testament that when the Bible talks about gifts and abilities, and we seem to focus on those things far more than the New Testament does, by the way. We seem to think that, that our rewards when we stand before the Lord will be based upon how gifted we are. But you'll notice that when the Bible talks about gifts, you get a different tone entirely. In fact, the the passages that we have in the New Testament discussing spiritual gifts are written to, to try to get rid of some confusion on the subject and to tell people really that they're misunderstanding and wrongly emphasizing and not understanding very much about the whole matter of spiritual gifts. Uh, Are you aware that when the New Testament tells you how to find leaders for spiritual ministry, it never says, be sure you find the gifted person? Did you know that? Look carefully the most familiar passage in the Bible giving instructions about what kind of person you should look for. Let's turn for a moment. First Timothy chapter three. This is the most familiar passage discussing what kind of person we should look for when we're looking for a person to be a, a leader in spiritual ministry. and it doesn't say anything about being gifted. This is a true saying, chapter three of First Timothy. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, that's spiritual oversight, he desires a noble work. And then he goes on to describe character qualities which should be true of such individuals. Uh, life patterns and character qualities of faithfulness. He must be blameless, the husband of one wife, that is a one-woman man, he must be vigilant, he must be sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy, a filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one who rules well his own house, and on and on we could go. My point again is nothing in the list even resembles saying he must be unusually gifted, he must be a great orator, he must have abilities far beyond the average person. The only thing in the list that has sometimes been misunderstood to suggest any kind of giftedness at all is that one little phrase, apt to teach. And I would like to suggest, and I would like to argue the point at some other occasion when we have time to elaborate it, that that does not mean he must be unusually gifted as a teacher. In fact, I believe you can demonstrate that, that it really means he must be a teachable person. The same word occurs uh, later on between the word gentle and peaceable. And it doesn't mean gentle, an unusually good teacher, and peaceable. It means gentle, teachable, and peaceable. That's a character quality which is essential for one who is going to be effectively involved in a leadership role in Christian service. And so to me, again, it is awesome to realize that what God expects of me is not a list of unusual gifts and achievements, but what our Lord expects of me is simply faithfulness. And that's exciting and encouraging. You realize that uh, there's no necessary connection at all between being gifted and being faithful? You can go through both testaments. Go through the Old Testament. For example, you'll find a lot of gifted men. Uh, The first one that would come to my mind is Balaam. He had an unusual gift. you remember the story of Balaam, the gift of prophecy, which was was rather amazing? And yet the angel met Balaam and his donkey, and the angel seemed to think that the donkey was more spiritual than Balaam was. He was not a spiritual man at all, but he was unusually gifted, the same is true of Samson. Samson was gifted, the strongest man on earth, but he was not a spiritual giant. The same is true with Gideon. Gideon was gifted in a very unusual way, as you're aware, but he was not a man of faith, he was not a spiritual man at all. If you read the story, you'll find out that Gideon ends up in idolatry. And you can go on and on. God gifted Saul, the first king of Israel, for a special task, but he was never what you would call a godly man or a really spiritual man. You can move into the New Testament and discover the same thing. Judas was one of the twelve apostles whom our Lord gave authority against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. And Judas is named then as one of those who received that power, and he wasn't even a believer. There's no necessary connection between spiritual gifts, unusual abilities, and being a spiritual person. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he says, you don't come behind in any spiritual gifts. All the spiritual gifts that I could list, you have them more than the other churches that I've been involved with, but you're not spiritual. I can't talk with you as though you were spiritual people. And our Lord talks about those who will stand before him on judgment day and they'll say, Lord, in your name we did all kinds of fantastic things. But our Lord will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Now, are you understanding where we're headed? God will reward us not on the basis of giftedness, accomplishments, but He will reward us on the basis of faithfulness. You know what? The the more gifted a person is, the more difficult it is for that person to be genuinely spiritual. Are you aware of that? There's no necessary correlation between the two at all. Because the more gifted a person is, the more he becomes concerned about the defending himself and promoting himself and protecting himself against attacks and so on. And you'll discover that that's just the characteristic that we have seen in the people that we've mentioned in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. That's why Paul, who was unusually gifted, was given a thorn in the flesh, lest he be lifted up with pride. What our Lord expects is not giftedness but faithfulness. When you hear a man described, if I were to bring a man up here and say, here's a man I want to introduce to you as a great man of God, I wonder what you would expect. If I'd done that in the Middle Ages, I'm not that old, but if I had been that old, you know. (laughs) If I had been able to bring a man before, a group of people in the Middle Ages and say, I want you to meet this great man of God, they would have thought, that I was talking about some kind of a hermit, some kind of a monk who lived off in a monastery or a cave, who separated himself from society, who lived a celibate life, who was an ascetic, who perhaps beat himself, who spent all of his time isolated from society. And that would be their, their chief characteristic and their understanding of a man of God. But for us today, I think it's almost automatic when we think of a great man of God, You think of a man who's unusually gifted. A man whose name may be known far and wide. And obviously some of those are great men of God, and we're glad when that happens. But there is no necessary connection between the two. And I would like to suggest, and I hope you'll really think about this, that when we stand before the Lord, when I stand before the Lord, and when you stand before the Lord, it's entirely possible that there will be housewives, it's entirely possible that there'll be truck drivers. It's entirely possible that there'll be dentists. It's entirely possible that there'll be uh seminary professors. Might as well get myself in. It's entirely possible that there may be students who will receive just as great a reward as those whose names may be known far and wide because we've been faithful. We've learned to be faithful in the area of responsibility and with the responsibilities and obligations that our Lord has allowed in our lives. Now, that to me is exciting, that's encouraging, it gives me hope. That's topic number one. Topic number two, I want I want us to think together about friendship. Uh, it's only in recent years in my own life that I think I'm just beginning to understand a little bit about the importance of what God intends to for us to do during the lifetime that He allows us upon this earth. I think He wants us to learn to love Him more intensely, and I think He wants us to learn to love others, to be involved in the business of of growing others up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and encouraging other Christians to grow spiritually and be involved in kinds of relationships that draw us all into greater dependency upon our Lord. A few years ago, I guess it was about four years ago now, I remember I was having dinner one evening with uh, two well-known gentlemen, one named uh, Dr. John MacArthur and the other named Dr. Larry Kraft. And uh, you know that was a few years ago. (laughs) Two very dear friends. And I said, I think I'm going to write a book on the subject of uh, lifestyle edification. I'm not sure who said what, but John said something like this. Well, uh, that title doesn't flow very smoothly and uh, Larry said yeah I don't think it'll sell very many books and I kind of grumbled under my breath you you two guys can rain on my parade if you want to you know if Joe Aldrich can write a book on lifestyle evangelism and it be popularized why can't I write a book on lifestyle edification and have it popularized I should have listened to those guys by the way last year they had number one and number two books in the nation you know But I didn't listen, so what I've done is changed my title. I've changed the title several times. In fact, at one time it was called, Come to the Party. (laughs) And that says the same thing, but my current title, my current title, whenever I get around to writing this, is, Christianity is Not a Solo Sport. You get that? Christianity is not a solo sport. I was raised in a Christian home. I had godly parents. I went to a good church. I went to a Christian college at least three years. I went to two of the best seminaries in the nation. And somehow during my lifetime, I had the idea that there are two things that are absolutely essential, and only two things absolutely essential to be spiritual. And that's number one, study the Bible. Number two, pray. And I don't don't want to downplay those two things at all. But I want to say that you can study the Bible all day, every day. And you can pray all night, every night. And be very unspiritual. I want to suggest that there's at least one other thing that's absolutely essential if we are to be growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ And that's this whole business of edifying relationships. We need to be involved in relationships that are drawing us together in ways that cause us to understand our dependence upon God and cause us to love him more fervently and to be more effective in loving others and pointing them in the same direction. Now, there are a lot of ways I could describe that. In fact, I think that there's one good little English word that says the same thing. But we don't usually understand it that way, and that's simply the word "church." C H U R C H is supposed to be an assemblage of people where we're working together and we're relating together in such ways that we're spurring one another on to love and good works. And I believe that unless we are involved in relationships with other believers in ways that that do what church is supposed to do and what the New Testament tells us is involved in in spurring one another on, unless that's happening, we will never really be reaching a place where we are spiritually mature. So there are at least three things essential for spiritual growth. Prayer, with the involvement of the Holy Spirit. Bible study, with the involvement of the Holy Spirit. And meaningful relationships, relationships that are designed and intended and 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 the effort involved to draw us toward our Lord and toward effective love to one another. Let me try to illustrate that by giving you a couple of personal personal illustrations. Uh, Fall of 1985, just before I moved out here, uh, I was on a speaking tour in different places and I happened to be in Louisiana for a weekend and then I went to Texas to speak in a couple of colleges and I, I deliberately saved a day free in Fort Worth. Now, the reason I saved the day free in Fort Worth is because that's where I was born, and I wanted to spend the day looking around in Fort Worth and stirring up old memories and so on. So I went downtown Fort Worth where my grandmother had worked at a store just about all of her life, and I remembered when I was a little boy she was always taking me downtown to show me off to all the sales ladies that worked in this store, and that was a big deal for me because everybody made a big plus over me, and I liked to be taken down there. And I went down there, and that building had been torn down and replaced by some real classy hotel. Then I went out a little farther down the road to where my grandfather had spent a large part of his time when I was a little boy. And he liked to take me out there just to sort of sit and watch the old men talk. He was an ornamental iron worker, and they liked to sit around the union hall and talk and play dominoes and things like that. And I went there, and the union hall was boarded up. No, no longer used. Then I drove to the part of town where I was born, and I went to the church where my grandmother and my grandfather had spent their lives attending church, where they'd invested their money. In fact, they'd paid for an elevator because Granny was crippled, and they put an elevator in to get her from one floor to another in the church building. And I went to that church building, and the church building was boarded up, closed. The whole neighborhood was radically changed. The church for a while had become a Spanish speaking church and then it, it didn't survive and it was closed up. And then I went to the house where I was born, just a couple of blocks down the street, around the corner. And I got to that house and, and it was, it was amazing to me how much deterioration had taken place. The house was still there, all right, but it was in great disrepair. My grandfather had had one of the most beautiful backyards I'd ever seen in my life with a fabulous huge fish pond and it was all filled with trash and dirt and old tires. I had helped to build, in fact I did all the inside work, a little apartment above the garage and that had burned off. Everything that I looked at was decaying and almost gone. I got in my car again and drove out to the cemetery where my grandparents were buried. I had just had my grandfather's funeral service there a couple of years before. And I got out there, and I was depressed, and I was discouraged. And I I got on my knees beside the tombstone, and I began to pray to my Lord. And I said, Lord, what in the world is our life all about? As far as I can see, not one single thing that Granny and Pop invested themselves in amounts to a hill of beans. Nothing lasts. It's all gone or soon to be gone. It's decaying. Is this what life is? We just come and then we go and it's done and nothing is worth anything? I I ended up flat down on the grass praying out to God to give me understanding about what was significant about the life of my grandparents. And while I was praying and while I was thinking about the fact that there's not one thing that I could name that they really accomplished by, by way of specific deeds or accomplishments that you'd list, not one thing that mattered, I began to realize that there was one thing that was very important about their life, and that is they loved me, and they loved my mother, and they loved my children. And the only thing that I can tell about their lives that matters for eternity is the relationship that they had with us, the way that Granny in particular pointed us toward our Lord, the kinds of attitudes that they helped to instill in us, those relationships that they had with us were the only things about their life that I can see that makes any difference at all for eternity. And so while I was praying in the cemetery, I decided that by God's grace I wanted to be sure that I was investing my life in relationships that matter for eternity, that have an impact for eternity. And so I decided to go back to the hotel room where I was staying and make some telephone calls and set up some appointments and try to start seeing people that I'd seen a long time ago in the Dallas-Fort Worth area but had had no contact with and trying to change the kind of relationship that I'd had with them. I remember calling one old man who was very sick. He'd almost forgotten who I was, and I said, I'd like to come over and chat with you. And he said, what in the world for? You know. <laughs> and I said, well, I understand you're sick and probably dying. I'd like to come talk with you about death and heaven. And I'll never forget his answer. He said, well, I sure wish you would. <laughs> no one else will talk with me about those things. So I went over and began to talk with him about that, and I made appointment after appointment and I would believe that in in within the next couple of days there, the impact that the Lord allowed me to have in those lives was more significant for eternity than all of the previous contacts I'd had with those same persons throughout scores of years. Well, not scores. Let's cut that down a little. A number of years. Well... How do we we go about the whole business of being sure that the relationships that we have are important relationships that make a difference for eternity? I had a young man with me this weekend. He flew here from uh, the East Coast to spend the weekend with me chatting. We had a great time. But I began to ask him some very probing questions, and my first suggestion You know, relationships that matter will not happen until you begin to work at that and try to make it happen. And so what I've done is, I I have a whole, I used to carry in my pocket a card with a whole lot of questions. I don't do that anymore because my head's full of questions now. But I asked this young man last night, uh, can you tell me who really loves you? That's kind of a tough question, isn't it? I won't give you his answer. Oh well, He couldn't name anyone. Uh, how have you changed in the last year? How would you like to change over the next year? My point is that when we are involved in relationships with each other, if we're going to be involved in doing what the Scriptures tell us to do, we're going to have to be involved in asking probing questions and not just talking about ball games. That's fun. And not just talking about weather, that's fun. Not just talking about classes, that's fun. Those things are fine, but also we need to be talking about our relationship with our Lord and the things that we the areas of our of our spiritual lives in which we're failing and we're not measuring up and where we're failing to be faithful and, and we need to be involved in the business of spurring one another on to love and good works. This can be summarized by simply reading to you a few snatches from the bible the one another's in the bible let me read just a few of them love one another stop judging one another warn one another be of the same mind toward one another comfort one another consider one another care for one another serve one another bear one another's burdens show forbearance toward one another be kind toward one another forgive one another lie not to one another be at peace with one another confess your faults to one another uh can't read my writing here. Be members of one another, edify one another, receive you one another, admonish one another, submit to one another, provoke one another unto love and good works, exhort one another. At least 58 one another's in the New Testament, almost everything in the world except ignore one another. And we need to learn what it means to be good at one anothering. And when we start doing that, when we, when we become deeply involved in caring for one another and directing our conversations through good probing questions which cause us to deal with what's going on in our hearts and how we're loving God or failing to love God and how we're loving neighbor or failing to love neighbor, then our loneliness is minimized. Our joys are multiplied. Our sorrows are divided. Our wisdom is expanded. Our accountability is maximized and freedom is enjoyed you understand that last point you you don't have to be a pious fraud anymore You, you know very often in many of our Christian circles we learn how to be good at being pious frauds but if we learn how to be transparent and vulnerable In talking about the things of the Lord, if we learn how to be good at the matter of confessing our faults one to another, and admonishing one another, and exhorting one another, if we learn how to be those things, it's a freeing experience because we don't have to be fakes anymore. We don't have to pretend anymore. There's absolute liberty and freedom. Well, our culture, of course, says don't reveal weaknesses. Be a Marlborough man, whatever that means. <laughs> but our Lord and his word tell us to be involved in confessing our faults one to another. Well, that's it. That's what I wanted to say this morning. I wanted to talk about two subjects, faithfulness and friendship. And just to finish, will you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22? You might think that these two subjects are unrelated. Matthew 22, verse 36. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. I would say that's what we were talking about when we are talking about faithfulness. Loving God. Faithfulness involves consistent obedience and worship in loving God with all our heart, soul and mind. That's the first commandment he says. And the second is like to it, it's like to it in that love again is the key. The second is like it and that is thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself and that's friendship. That's edifying relationship. That's Christianity is not a solo sport. It involves our relationships with one another. You see, the great thing is, though, that our Lord says that this summarizes God's requirements for man. The whole Old Testament is summarized, and obviously the New Testament wasn't written, but I would add now also the New Testament, all of God's revelation to us, is summarized in these two great commands love God and love neighbor, and that's the summary of God's commands to us. And you see, that's great. Not only is that what God commands, it's what I want to do. And it's what you want to do. If you're genuinely a believer, if you've genuinely been born again, there's something in your heart. You want to love God with all your heart and soul, and you want to be involved in the business of loving people and spurring them on to love and good works. So my challenge and my desire and my longing and my hope is simply that you'll love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Focus on faithfulness and friendship. Let's bow and pray.